Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Chris Hutton. Chris, how are you doing? Hi, Nick. Hi, Sarah. Doing well, thanks. Uh, looking forward to another week of uh, economic and interesting political stories in South Africa. Indeed. Indeed. We're also joined today by Sarah This one way of putting it. Um, hi. Sorry about Friday. Um, I blame it on the internet lines that are down in the Congo Basin. Yes, uh, which has been disrupting a lot of people's internet connections, uh, but hopefully you will still be able to see our, our show today. So let's get into the uh, probably most important story of today. And this is this is two different stories that I'm just going to go through the details of very quickly, but there's a very obvious common theme between them um, of, of, of mismanagement and, and, and BE and corruption, all that sort of stuff. So uh, we, we've gotten a new story recently about how there's a big fight in the car power ship deal. These are these big uh, gas-powered ships that are supposed to park off the coast and provide emergency power for South Africa. Uh, the uh, deal is controversial for a lot of reasons, particularly because it's, it's uh, allegations of corruption and favorable benefits, basically, for the company that's doing this. Um, also, there's some environmentalist concerns, that kind of stuff, but... Uh, the recent development is that apparently the local BE partners are being muscled out by another BE partner. Uh, Moko Kong uh, is, the, is the lady's name, um, who is on the board of like Sereti Coal um, uh, and, and, and various other important companies. Uh, and that apparently the original BE partners couldn't front up 10 million rand to... to uh, that the, the, the Turkish company wanted for the project. And so now they look like they're in negotiations with this other person to push them, uh, to push the original partners out. So this doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's kind of stalling the project. If this is supposed to be a solution for our power issues, this is going to be another uh, hurdle. And it just looks like a lot of infighting over people who are really going to make an awful lot of money or really very well off. And then at the same time, um, we're getting more details about what exactly is causing the delay at Kuburg. So Kuburg is our one nuclear power plant and it is undergoing uh, upgrades and refits so that it can continue to be in service for quite a long while. Obviously, it's very important to do that with a nuclear reactor because you don't want any mistakes. Um, but... Uh, there's some details now about the French company, which was given the contract to do a lot of the repair work. And there was originally a battle which went all the way to the constitutional court about the about the awarding of this contract to the French company, even though it was one of the more expensive ones. And this was above an American company, which also bid. And since then, um, there have been a lot of problems. Apparently, the French company couldn't fix some of the parts, so they had to be sent to China. We actually talked about this in September last year, about uh, one of the generators being dropped on the factory floor while in China. Um, and that they have just been delay after delay, but that ESCOM hasn't done some of the things it needs to do. It hasn't built up a, a shed uh, where it would need to store some, of, or, or a building rather, to store some of the steam generators. Um, and basically... While the project is being uh, now, instead of being completed, I think on the beginning of October, is going to be only completed in November, they say, I have a feeling that that might even be optimistic itself. And even worse is that apparently, according to the story, um, some people in Electricity Minister Ramakhopa's office say that ESCOM is trying to block them 
from knowing what's going on uh, with the project. So once again, infighting, squabbling uh, uh, amongst cadres while kind of, you know, the country burns around us. Chris, what do you make of these two stories? I mean, this is, these are sort of in a nutshell why the past situation is the way it is. You've got bad policy, you've got bad actors, and just people not really being held accountable for poor performance. Yeah, the, the bad actors and the sort of bad incentives are a necessary consequence of the bad ideas. It's not a the sort of accident that these sorts of things would happen. It necessarily follows from, for example, cater deployment that you would have um, in this instance where who ultimately gets to control these things, who gets the contracts, who gets the benefits. Well, those with the right sort of heft, political heft, with that influence, those who are able to say, and wield that heft and that influence and to them now show they should get it over someone else. It's not about uh, whether they can deliver a better service, for example, in the case of this car powership deal kind of thing, who who can perform the best, who can do the most cost effective. It's all about that sort of political influence that you have. On the Kubach story, I mean, one could apportion the blame, for example, on the, the French company involved maybe in also shipping some of the equipment to China there were delays there and other issues there, as we've seen with other and, things and being shipped too. Apparently a lot of extra expenses. And to be fair, it's not just the uh, ESCOM that's had to carry all those extra expenses. The French company has also carried a lot of them. Right. So in that particular instance, you can apportion then some of the responsibility and the blame, not just on ESCOM. But that doesn't take away from the lack of planning necessary and the lack of foresight. This, Even in the last few months, we've had delays announced for another few months, another few months at unit Two, I believe, unit one should be taken offline by November. If unit two isn't brought back, then you'd have Kubar off, which I, is I think it's the other way two around. stages of load shedding. I think it's unit one that's currently off, right. unit two that will be taken off. Yeah. It's planned to be, yeah. So if you don't get this right now, then you've got two around 2,000 megawatts offline, which is effectively two stages of, of load shedding. Um, so just because there's other people involved doesn't mean that the processes at ESCOM didn't also give rise to this particular issue. And also the processes at other departments, because ESCOMP is so caught between the Department of Energy and Forestry and Mineral Resources and everything else, all these other things that have to be taken into consideration. Who gets the benefit from the French contract? Who gets the benefit from the Chinese contract? It all feeds into each other. And it, it continues then, because of the delays and not turning things around, impacts the most on poor South Africans. That's exactly right. Sarah, what do you make of all this mess? How would you solve it? Um, I think we should accept that uh, that um, ESCOM's days are numbered. Um, I think it's it's almost irreparable it, it, because because of all those factors you spoke about. Um, I, I haven't read why the Constitutional Court thought on technicalities that the more expensive French um, proposal was. Uh, preferable over the American one, and they, they said something to do with synergies or something like that. I can't, I can't exactly remember. But well, I mean, it clearly it just wasn't wasn't correct. Uh, I mean, at least from the evidence we've had so far. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and I mean the thing is that French get it; they can't repair it. They send it to China, who say these are dead. And I mean, my question, of course, would be: being Chinese, were they dead, or do they just want to contract for new units? But be that as it may, um, it, 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 it was a matter of time before the, the the horror show that is ESCOM and the power, power stations became got to Kuburg. Um, they have managed to weed out skills, abilities, managers who have those. 
Um, and, you know, the, the problem is, is as soon as you don't have enough of the adequate skills, this is ESCOM, it's going to happen. Um, and it, it's what's really terrible about it is, is that ideally nuclear power should be, other than the cost, obviously, should be what we are aiming at. Um, I don't think right. the... I, I, the I think I'm correct yeah. in saying that Kuberg has been through all of load shedding ESCOM's most reliable yes. power station. Yes. So as I said, it was a matter of time before it got to Kuberg. Um, it's, I, I, it, it's like it, I want to, you know, sort of weep because I don't think the current ESCOM board is m- much good for ESCOM. Um, they still haven't got a CEO. Maybe they don't need a CEO, as someone suggested, but... Hell, somebody's got to try and hold this stuff together. But I don't actually think under the board, in the current circumstances, with three ministers re- responsible, that a CEO, I mean, wouldn't, I don't think any, anyone who takes a job now would be off their rockers. Um, and I, I just think we've got to, the, the, the industry has to increase the amount of power it's getting, it creates its own power. Sub- suburbs have to, I'm sorry, not suburbs, but suburb people who live in suburbs have to. And do whatever we can to take the load off because it, the help is not going to be, come from ESCOM. You watch that unit will not be back up, as you say, by the beginning of November. And so now we'll have that down still and the other one about to fall apart or explode or do whatever it does. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a train smash. Oh, well, it would be a train smash if we had trains, but, you know, we don't. So we <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's another issue. Yeah, I think I think this kind of is yet another one of these stories where we see sort of all these intervening things as uh, you know, and 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 running as a kind of line through a lot of this stuff is is preferential procurement stuff and political interference and cater deployment, um, which just makes every system rotten because all the focus is on who's getting what out of the pie uh, rather than actually on running anything, and so you just have complete sort of management failure like this which is obviously no good. Uh, Chris, any final thoughts on this before we move on? Not not immediately, but I think, yeah, the sort of given the direction that ESCOM is going in general, sort of into irrelevance, despite the best uh, attempts by government, hopefully these the sort of negative consequences of all this will be somewhat mitigated in the future. I don't think it's going to go away. Um, you're going to maybe improve some energy availability factor at this power station or that one, but the systems and the incentives just aren't going to change substantively and quickly enough for ESCOM to solve load shedding. But now that people are trying to find other solutions, hopefully these sorts of issues will become more and more isolated. Of course, we're dealing with a nuclear power plant here. So ideally, you want it to be running as well as possible. So let's hope eventually. Um, if it has to be then taken offline for longer, that's also fine. But for now, I don't see this sort of thing, the, these continued stories and scandals going away. No, exactly. So, Nick, can I just make a point? Go um, ahead. Michael, our audience member, says at least warmer weather is coming. Now, that may be just because we've had a long winter, a long cold winter, and we all want warm weather. But it's also a time when power is a problem because ESCOM is supposed to do all its routine maintenance or much of its routine maintenance during summer. Um, and I don't think it's been doing any routine maintenance. I think it's just been, you know, fixing the crises as they happen. So... Will it go down because they're not doing the maintenance? Will they try and do some maintenance? Is there any routine? Um, 
I guess we will wait and see. But I, I don't. I don't. I think mm. the ANC mustn't get too comfortable that summer is going to solve its problems. No, I think that's very, very definitely possible. Um, hopefully, that we can avoid the beginning of the year's uh, load shedding schedule because that was not fun for anyone. But uh, yeah, signs are not positive that we will be able to avoid it. Okay. Um, Let's move on now to the city of Toyne, where there has been an ongoing strike about pay um, from municipal workers there, so affiliated with SAMU, the South African Municipal Workers Union. Uh, a lot of the attention was drawn away from the story, I think, last week because the, of the taxi strike in Cape Town. Uh, this story, uh, the, the strike has been disruptive, but not as, you know, people haven't, buses aren't being burned, people aren't being killed en masse, and that kind of thing. Um, but... It's still been causing problems. Uh, the strike was declared illegal by a court, and I believe the city of Tane has now begun to fire uh, some people. Uh, the, the, the argument is over a 4.5% increase with the city. Um, workers claim they, they, they are owed from an agreement back, and I think it was 2021, but the city of Tane basically says, look, we're completely out of cash. You know, We don't have the money to fix the Hamanskral water plant. We're not going to give you a wage increase. In fact, we're proposing a wage increase of zero percent. And um, interestingly, uh, someone went and did a study just looking at how much. Uh, uh, I think MoneyWeb did a lot of the, the, the legwork on this. Um, how much city workers actually get paid at the city of Tuana? Because I think we often get this impression in our mind: you see people striking, and you think. You know, the, the unions themselves are very keen on projecting themselves as, you know, we are the poor, oppressed, working class masses who don't earn anything. Um, but that actually city employees in Tuane are some of the best play, paid employees in Gauteng, at least much more, much better paid than I think about 50, at more than 50% of Gauteng's residents. Uh, MoneyWeb says that they've worked out that the city's administrative officials, officers rather, Bus drivers, cashiers, gardeners, handymen, and receptionists earn between 19,000 and 26,500 Rand per month, which is quite a lot. Uh, an electrician, an artisan electrician, and a call center operator between 26,000 and 37,000 Rand per month, and an executive secretary between 30,000 Rand and 42,000 Rand per month. So it sucks to not get uh, a wage increase, that's for sure. And I appreciate the cost of living has gone up. But it's not exactly as though the city of Tony's employees here are on the edge of the breadline, except at, to the extent that some of them are supporting um, uh, family members who are unemployed. Um, but, you know, you can't pay one person with the expectation that they've got to feed 12 people, uh, which, which, which is, I think, what some people kind of hope for. So what do you make of this? Oh, I like this. Um, and I quote, holy shit, that is what our audience member says, and she's right, or he's right, I'm not quite sure. Um, what you, what Celine Brink needs to do, and I think he's in the way, you know, in the process of doing it, is he actually has to do to Samu and the municipal workers what Jordan Hill Lewis did to the taxi industry. And that is when you've had the power, the balance of power in the hands of, of a, a union like SAMU, which has a, a very, generally a very bad reputation for violence and destruction, um, you haven't got the money. You just haven't got the money. Um, while one all understands, as you say, the cost of living, etc., they've taken the stand 0% 
and they have started dismissing, which is very, very important. I mean, for years, and, and the last big one was the ESCOM strike of last year, where people didn't get dismissed, did commit damage and, and violence, uh, and they ended up getting from the government their 7% increase or whatever it was. Whatever it was. Um, they've, got to, they've got to stand their ground. Essentially what happens is when one party in a relationship like this, which is not unlike a relationship, any relationship between a union and an employer, when the balance of power has been in the, in the hands of the one and the other, the employer, is under pressure and actually cannot meet the demands, they actually have to sit it out. I know it's awful because services are not being delivered. The city looks and smells like, like rubbish. Um, but it's a bit like the tax industry. You have to change the power dynamic. And the only way is um, not is, is you sit it out until the union buckles, either because people are getting dismissed left, right, and center for still embarking on what's been declared an unlawful strike, and also because you can't, you just can't afford it. And that's because of the profligacy of the, uh, by and large, of the ANC administration that, that came for years before. It's 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 a classic industrial relations type issue. And that is how it is dealt with. It does take a lot of cojones to hold the line, um, to mix all my metaphors, but it's 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 what you have to do. And I think you know a lot of people have complained about the city of Cape Town, you know, leaving the commuters stranded, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but there are no easy options when you are dealing with a, a power play. This the, this is it. And bear in mind, of course, it's those are the cash. Those are what people get at month end out of the city council. It doesn't account for the paid medical aid. It doesn't account for pension fund. It doesn't account for a whole lot of benefits that a lot of people, if not most people in the private sector, don't have because they either work for themselves or they work for companies that are on such tight margins they can't provide them. So those are all the factors that say. Hold the line. They have to. It's it's crucial. And and Kasatu and its unions have very much ridden their relationship. They're part of the tripartite alliance. And if if Brink can hold on, I think he must. So according to the Bureau of Market Research in Unisa, uh, from Unisa, seventy six percent of adults in Gauteng earn less than seven thousand four hundred rand per month. Um. And then when you when you kind of compare that to what like kind of the lower positions here uh, are, are earning at um, or at least the, the, the sort of more entry positions or the less skilled positions at the uh, the city of Toronto, what they're earning it's it's just completely out of whack. And I think this is a very concrete example, Chris, of exactly why the public sector wage bill is just such a massive drain on our finances. Because being in government, um, I mean, I think it's probably not a great environment to work in, uh, but in terms of pay. It's pretty good. Yeah, and you don't particularly have to worry about competition. Um, that's partly when you get this issue of unions raising barriers to entry, or at least union leaders, because then they don't have to worry about competition for their members and for themselves. I mean, talking about the salaries in and of themselves, also whether they're exorbitant or not, it doesn't help one necessarily because they're not subject to market forces. So if a CEO, a CEO gets paid however many millions of dollars in a free market that is based on this value that he offers to his company, to the shareholders, what they can offer to customers. Therefore it is justified. But if you look at how protected the public sector is from competition and from metrics like service delivery, 
then on that basis, the salaries definitely aren't justified. And it, in the sort of situation we are now, every year that economic freedom in South Africa becomes lower and lower, the only, well, one of the only ways that you sort of get ahead, as it were, that you can beat inflation, take care of your family, your sort of extended family, you don't have jobs, is by having a, a, a job in the state, in the government, um, because you're protected and you get these massive increases. Uh, Nedbank last week, they released their interim results for January to June or January to May this year. So for that sort of metric of their clients, their customers, incomes increased by 4%. Uh, the cost of mortgage, mortgages, for example, increased by 18%. Uh, car loans by 10%. So in the private sector, sort of the middle class of South Africa, the increases of prices are just outstripping incomes, whereas in the public sector, you're fine because you're sort of got these built-in uh, increases. And eventually those have to be paid off in, in the form of the, the wage bill in terms of taking on debt and interest on the debt. So in the short term, you don't worry about that. You're in the position where you're fine. You can pay off everything. But long term, the burden gets passed onto the fiscus, onto taxpayers, and it undermines the fiscus in the long run. We then lose our credit ratings, et cetera. So it's sort of uh, well, that, that saying of uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. In this case, it's the few in the public sector outweigh the needs of the many in, in society. Sarah, final thoughts from you? Just to say that it's actually sort of on, in the macro level worse than, it, worse than it looks because the public sector wage bill is national and provincial. So municipal wages come in over and above that. So the amounts of money that pouring out are, are beyond huge. And I think, I think if I saw correctly that if, if you're at the top level in, in management in the city, you can earn something like, was it 190000 a month? Um, something like that. Wow, um, we can. Uh, we're looking at a revolution. If uh, I don't know how you get this get this down unless you fire everybody. You know, this is just to make a point here. You know, when people complain about our MPs getting too much, I think MPs get something around sixty grand a month. Mm. Uh, the real fat is not the, it's not in Parliament. It's in the civil service, in the administration, where you have you know people earning hundred thousand rand a month. People, you know, like at the, the very bottom of the food chain, earning like twenty five thousand rand a month. That's and there's a lot of people in those positions, which is why it's so expensive. Uh, and and sorry, as you said, you know, if we don't change the power if the power dynamic here is not changed, this is not sustainable. Okay, um, let's move on to our last story for today, and this is just comments from Neil Froneman, who is continue to be one of the more uh, aggressive advocates for business taking a bigger role in South Africa's politics. Um, Froneman has just, as was explaining in some interviews why he is taking part in some of these new CEO-driven initiatives to uh, partner with government or to, to, to uh, improve, particularly his focus is on law and order. Um, the joint initiative against crime and corruption is what this thing is being called. Uh, he he welcomes um, uh, government's uh, commitment to work with these groups, um, but he says that if government is not willing to kind of help, that uh, business should not be afraid to do its own things to uh, ensure law and order as, as far as they as far as they can go. Um, he says, "I'm proud that the private sector has been able to engage with the secu state security at the highest level for the first time." 
Uh, but I must tell you that if the chemistry doesn't work as business and civil society, we can still achieve a lot. I'm not doing this because I suddenly think the ANC needs propping up. I think voters are acutely aware of how dire the situation is in SA. They need to vote the right way. This is not about helping the ANC. This is about actually helping our country. The best way I can describe my willingness to get involved is the national interest. It's for the government of the future that doesn't need to inherit a mess. We can try and make a difference. Uh, I personally, Sara, would be pleased if a lot more businesses were so frank <laughs> about the politics rather than kind of playing this sort of um, nice, nice game around the table where everyone talks about how great everyone else is and how much everyone wants to cooperate with everyone else. Well, I think I think the thing is that um, Frenemann earned his stripes, shall we say, with the platinum uh, strike in the platinum industry a few years ago, because again, you've got a very volatile workforce, unions that are very radical, um, making it the, the mines' lives difficult, the, the employers' lives difficult, and with careful planning and and approval by the board to go for it, he did exactly what I was talking about earlier. He set out the strike. People, some people were killed. There was damage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what he needed to do, and which he did, was he 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 wrote out the point at which people could not afford not to earn salaries. And remember, of course, with when people go on strike, lawfully or unlawfully, they do not get paid. Or if they are paid, you should just shut the whole enterprise down because that's not the law. They're not providing services, so they don't get paid. And that's the pressure, the, the two pressure points. And eventually, Fruneman sort of overrode, brought the unions under control. I think it, there was an increase, but it just wasn't at the level they wanted. And he, I mean, I think he's a man who really does understand power. And I think if he says they can do something with and for government, but it's not completely open-ended. If you don't get what they need out of government, they'll go it alone. And I think Fruneman has said that if the government doesn't come to the party, they already, in other words, the, the cluster that's looking after crime and corruption um, could do 80% of what is needed without the government, which right. suggests that, that business in general is, um, is, 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 is planning and, and not not waiting for the government to approve what they do. I hope that's the case. Chris, what do you make of this? Now, the, the sort of immediate risk that came to mind when I first heard of this new pledge focused on these three issues of energy, logistics, and crime and security was this idea of maybe you can fix some of the sort of low-hanging fruit now before the elections, and then in that way, you help it to appear that government is getting things right. And what does that do for the vote share for the ANC? I'm not saying it's a given. It might be too late to sort of arrest the decline of the party and they still get under 50%, but you could be artificially helping change some people's minds in that way. That is, this, this isn't to say that those involved, that their heart isn't in the right place, noble intentions, all that sort of thing. But given the sort of terms on which you engage, you need to be exceedingly careful, which makes, which gives one hope that someone like Fronemann at least, and I hope others share his views, people like Martin Kingston, for example, realize it shouldn't just be on government's terms the whole time. You can walk away when things don't change, when nothing happens. I mean, a lot of these bigger businesses, we've, not, we've got Women's Month this month. So all the big companies have got you know, women's rights and gender-based violence is an issue. 
let's deal with it. You still have a minister of police in charge of the police force of the country with arguably the highest GBV rate in the world. Where is the reform of, of ministerial positions, for example? Where is that accountability? Where from government are we seeing, yes, we'll stick to this, we'll do this. It's not just business the whole time who's held up and told, continue to pay your taxes, but also be double, triple tax because they have to pay for load sharing and you have to do this. So you have to give us our expertise to fix this and fix that. So yeah, it's a multi-layered thing, but I'm hoping that someone like Fruneman continues to hold the line and says, yeah, we can try and sort of keep the country from falling off the cliff, but long-term that's not sustainable without real policy reform and real ideological reform. Then you're going to continue having these sort of crisis meetings and committees and who can, which business has the resources to help transnet or whatever. That's not sustainable in the long term. So, yeah, when when big business and big government get in the room together, I get very, very nervous and you worry about the incentives and, you know, you can then set up regulations and stuff to benefit you because you've got the influence and the necessary money to deal with the regulations. I'm not saying that will happen this time, just that sort of points in that direction. So right. let's see how it shakes out. You know, kudos for trying to roll up one sleeves because we often say, don't just complain, try and do something. Well, Someone like a friend of mine is trying to do something. Let's now see if it manifests in a longer-term, better way. I think um, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, uh, my ideal form of government is not big business getting together with the uh, with the government to you know fix all of the solutions, all of the problems in South Africa. Uh, and yet, at this point in time, it seems like one of the less bad options to have the private sector kind of step in and 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 like prop up pieces of the state, at least until such a time as reforms come and the state can be uh, made more effective. Um, final thoughts from you, Sarah? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I just wanted to say this is another exercising power and the power should be in shifting to the hands of business. And when they have the power, they should be demanding undertakings from the government about a whole range of things in exchange for for their assistance to get to improve things, exercise the power, and I think a guy like Fruneman and I'm sure some of his colleagues uh, understand that really well and have stopped feeling beholden. Like exactly, it's it's not a negotiation if you're not ever willing to to kind of call anyone on anything or walk away from the table. Okay. Um, with that, I hope that you found the show interesting. Uh, we're going to now expand the Daily Friend wrap shows to Tuesdays. So they're going to be on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And then we'll have the longer show again on Friday. Uh, so we will see you all hopefully tomorrow and through the rest of the week. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Cheers, everyone.